We're going to be reading 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and, by, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. 
I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and each kind of seed his own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body shall put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Chapter 15 is a long chapter. And uh, what I want to do today is to try and give us a bird's eye view of the resurrection. Uh, Kath and I um, watched last night um, the second episode of Planet Earth 2. And it was about the mountains. And one of the things that they did was they had a camera stuck on the back of a golden eagle as it was flying through the mountains. And it was absolutely just an amazing perspective as this thing was flying around and looking down over the valleys. And um, this is a side note, but they're saying that this thing can spot prey three kilometers away. Um, we're not going to spot prey in the chapter 15 on the resurrection, but I hope we spot a few things that will be helpful um, uh, to just get this big picture of the resurrection. Uh, I, 
as a Christian, the resurrection is really at the core of our faith and the heart of our belief. Without the resurrection, there really is no Christianity. Uh, without the resurrection, our faith is in vain. Now, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the supreme vindication of um, who he is and of all that he taught. It's proof that Jesus, in fact, did triumph over death and sin. It's also a foreshadowing of the resurrection of all that is to come when Jesus comes back and at the time of the great white throne judgment. The resurrection is the truth that this life is only the prelude of the life that is to come for those who trust in Jesus Christ. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so critical to our faith. Now the first thing, and I just have a number of points that try and summarize uh, various uh, of this scripture, but I was stuck and didn't get very far for quite some time with just verse 1 of chapter 15, where it talks about the gospel. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. The gospel is good news. And I think sometimes we have to even go back to some of the most basic realities of the Christian faith, and that is the gospel, the good news. What's it all about? One person wrote, and I think this is very helpful, that the gospel is the good news about what God has done. That's one of the hearts of Christian salvation is that we contribute nothing to it. We do nothing for it. That God has done everything necessary to make it possible for you and I to have the forgiveness of our sins and to enter into eternal life. And so the gospel is about what God has done for us. It's not just what he's done for my soul, but as we'll see, what he's done for my body. It's not just about what God does for me, but it's about what God does for this entire cosmos in which he has created. The resurrection of Jesus is not just about individual men and women. The resurrection of Jesus reverses the curse of sin on this whole universe. And there is an incredible restoration that is just around the corner. When we come to thinking about the gospel, it has been at the heart of the church for many, many years. And this year, some of you may know, is the celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation when Martin Luther hammered his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg. And the Reformation was in large part sparked by a return to the gospel. It was sparked by a refocusing and a coming to understanding in a fresh new way what the scriptures taught about salvation. And they were in contradiction to what the church uh, at that time, the church of Rome, had been teaching about salvation. And instead of indulgences or the mass or relics or other superstitions, men and women began to discover that the ancient way of salvation, the way of salvation described in the Bible, is the only way for one to come into everlasting life and into a relationship with God. And that the Reformation truths were built upon the fact that God makes us alive and is completely for us. And there's five sort of cornerstones of the understanding of salvation that the Reformers began to piece together. And it was simply this, that our salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, revealed in Scripture alone. These are incredible truths, and in fact, they are so central to what we believe that we're going to take five weeks and look at each one of those starting in a couple weeks. And just zero in again on what it is that the Bible teaches about the way 
of salvation. And so the way of salvation is the heart of the gospel. As I said, the gospel is good news. And Paul just says here, I, 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 I spoke to you or I want to remind you of the gospel. In the, in, the, in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's talked about as good news. I think an easy way, though, to understand the good news is to first start with the bad news. Because if you don't know what the bad news is, you really don't know what the good news is. And the bad news starts with sin. And in fact, a little bit later in this uh, chapter, Paul says, for what I, I want to deliver, what I first, uh, first important, what I received, that Christ died for our sins. And so the gospel addresses the problem of our sin. Now, sin is something that has become very little understood in the day and age in which we live. It is not a mistake. Sin in the Bible is not the same as forgetting to carry the one in a math problem. Neither is sin um, something that uh, fixes what is broken in us. Although there is a truth that we have um, been shattered by our sins, but we are not just broken people. It's not like um, playing hockey in your house and you shoot the ball through a window and the window is broken. Sin is much more serious than that. I think in our culture today, sin is sometimes described in very trivial ways. It's described as a sinfully delicious dessert. That is nowhere near how the Bible talks about the, uh, the nature or the consequences of sin. Today, there is no longer a stigma attached to those that live morally depraved lives. In fact, we almost laud and applaud those who live incredibly debauched lives. And we also almost say that that's normal and we encourage people to follow their feelings and to sow their wild oats. There is no longer shame that accompanies sinful actions anymore. And guilt no longer is part of our discussion when it comes to sin. Sin is bad news. Sin reminds us that we have rejected God as our king. Sin reminds us that we have rejected God's laws for us. And there's a number of ways the Bible describes that. It describes sin as rebellion. So part of sin is rebelling against God that has made this world and everything in it, including us and given us the guidelines for how we live. Sin is also described as missing the mark. There is a mark of how God wants to live and we end up over here or we end up over there because we don't walk in God's ways. Sin is also in other places um, uh, described as transgressing or going out of bounds. When uh, those who ski or those who snowboard go out of bounds, they transgress the boundaries. Sin is going outside of the boundaries that God has given us. And the Bible says that the problem is sin is universal. It says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the consequences of sin are staggering because it says the wages of sin is death. And so when Adam first sinned, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, when he mutinied against God, he not only destroyed his own life and brought death and destruction to himself and all of his descendants, but rebellion against God went viral and went into every conceivable, imaginable corner of his universe and his creation. How did we get there? The, the Bible has a, a worldview. We all have a worldview. The biblical worldview is the one I subscribe to. The Bible tells us that originally God made this world perfect in every way. 
Genesis 1 and 2 describe God's creation. At the end of it, he said again and again and again that everything that he made was good. God had always intended for mankind to have a wonderful relationship with him, a wonderful relationship with one another, and a wonderful relationship with the world that he has created. And that's how the Bible describes God's initial intent for this world. But Adam, unfortunately, fell and committed treason against God. He ate of the fruit of the tree that God had told him to avoid. And his sin, as I said, damaged not only himself, but all of creation. It's like when you throw a rock into a still pond and the ripples just go to every corner of that pond. So the sin of Adam created ripples that went to every corner of every life of every part of this universe. The human society, animal kingdom, and even the ground in which we work or in which we work and live. Place yourself in God's shoes now. What do you do? What do you do if you have created this awesome, incredibly perfect world and all of a sudden man enters into it and destroys that world? What would your next move be? Well, I doubt that God would scrap it and I don't think that's what we would want God to do. If you did, you would be acknowledging that Satan was more powerful and he had won the victory. You would be acknowledging that Satan had somehow been able to dupe you because the sin that he had introduced into the world was able to overpower God's good creation, making it irretrievably evil. No, if you are God, you would never concede that. Instead, you would forcefully strike back at Satan and you would do it with a plan of redemption of reconciliation, of restoration. And that is the good news. From Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 22, we have the story of the good news of God's salvation of not only mankind, but of his universe. And that is the gospel that we preach, that you can be restored into a healthy, eternal relationship with God through the work of Jesus Christ in his life, Death, burial, and resurrection. The resurrection is proof that God's power to restore human life and creation is in fact true. And so Paul came to these individuals and he originally pre preached the gospel to them. And they had received it. And he says to them, when, he, when, I, when I preach to you the gospel, there's a past reality to anyone who has heard the gospel and received it. He says, which you received. It's a gift. That's what we talk about when we talk about salvation and the gospel. It is a gift that we receive from God. For grace have you been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's a gift. And so our salvation begins by hearing the good news, and there's a past reality that when we respond to that good news, we receive salvation entirely freely by God. But there's a present reality to that, and he says, in which you now stand. And so we don't just start with the gospel and the good news of the gift of God, but we stand in that, and we continue to stand in the fact that all that we have is received and comes to us by the grace of God. But there's also a future reality to the gospel, by, it says there, by which you are being saved. In other words, the Bible teaches us that we are now saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. The gospel will come to its completion when Jesus Christ comes back and makes this whole world, including us, perfect. And so he says, this is the gospel that I preached to you. And that gospel is bound together by the resurrection of the dead. Verse 
uh, 12 is a fascinating verse because I think it controls what comes before and what comes after up until at least verse 20. And there, Paul is responding to uh, a question uh, or that they have raised and a concern that he has. He says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? How do you say that? If this is what the gospel is and it's proclaimed to you, now how can some of you be slipping back into this viewpoint that there is no resurrection from the dead? And he starts, he simply says, and we've looked at this, the gospel has changed you, it was proclaimed to you, it changed your past, it's influenced your present, and it's given you a hope for the future. How can you now say that there is no resurrection from the dead? He says, not only that, he says, the gospel has been recorded in the scriptures. Before any of us were ever alive, before any of this happened, God put it down in the pages of his book so that we might know that he was God and that he had the power to bring about what he could do. It says, according to the scriptures, Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he would be buried. According to the scriptures, he would be raised from the dead. You have the scriptures. You see what God has done. How can you say there is no resurrection from the dead? And then he goes on in a third point and he says to them, listen, the resurrection has been attested by so many witnesses. These are people of, uh, of, of authority. They are common people. They are credible people. And in fact, many of the people that witnessed the res resurrection are still alive. And you can go and talk to them. And I am one, Paul says, that have witnessed the resurrection. And you can talk to me. How is it that you say there is no resurrection from the dead? And he builds this case to them and he, he, he anticipates that question. He says, listen, it's been preached to you. Know, it's changed your life. Listen, it's in the scriptures. You can read it from Genesis to Malachi. Listen, there are witnesses that you can still go and talk to. Listen, lives are being changed. But how do you say that? And he just like, it's like he shakes them and says, listen, give your head a shake. Look around you. Look inside you and realize the power of the resurrection and the truth of the resurrection. The second thing that he says is he applies that same question to a forward bit of thinking. As he talks to them, he says, does the historical resurrection of Jesus matter? Again, how do you, how do you come up with a point? He says, how do you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? I don't know if you've thought through that or asked yourself that question. What was going on in Corinth that some of them were asking that? Well, I've got a couple of reasons that I think. Some of them might have been embarrassed that this is the wisdom of God. They might have thought that it was foolish. They might have wanted to make the gospel palatable. After all, how do you share with your neighbor or somebody in your family this newfound reality that you've come to understand and the resurrection power that you are saying? And you say to them, well, listen, it's all rooted in the fact that there was this man who lived this perfect life and then who killed and went in the grave, but God raised him from the dead. And that's what I believe. And they look at you like you're crazy. And so maybe them, some of them have concluded, listen, the best way to share the gospel is to avoid talking about the resurrection and this just talk about other things. I wonder if part of what was going on, though, is that they had been so convinced of the resurrection, but they had got the timing of it wrong and the order of it wrong. And so now they had been Christians for three, four, five years, and some of them that they had loved, maybe they had lost spouses, maybe they had lost children, maybe they had lost friends, and they had died, and they kind of kept going to the living room and expecting one day that the door would open and their loved one would walk back in. And weeks had passed by, months had passed by, years had passed by, and nobody had returned from the dead. And so they were saying, how can you you say there is a resurrection from the dead because they had misunderstood what God had taught in his word and what Paul had talked about the Bible and so he says to them listen instead of living the dream you are living the lie 
If you remove the resurrection from the gospel and say there is no resurrection, you gut the gospel. And he says to him, I want you to think through what you're saying. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then think about this. Christ is still dead. And if Christ is still dead, then this whole thing of sharing the gospel, of preaching the gospel, is just a big joke. And if Christ is still dead, and if gospel sharing is a joke, then your faith is empty. What have you believed? What have you trusted in? It's hollow. It's a sham as well. And he says, listen, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then we've been lying to you, and you've probably lied once in a while to others in telling them that, yes, God said he would raise them from the dead. There are some huge theological problems that you have to wrestle with if there is no resurrection from the dead. And he says, beyond that, there's also some practical ones for you. And if there is no resurrection from the dead, then what we thought, or thought master mattered most is just a big fat lie. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then we've received the short end of the stupid stick. Really, this is what he says to them. You're still in your sins. You've been, you've been walking around trying to convince yourself that your sins are forgiven and that you're, you're no guilt and there's no shame. You're just kidding yourselves. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then what's this hope that you're holding out that one day you're going to see your loved ones again? They're dead. You're never going to see them again. That's the end of their life. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then we're just a pitiful lot. It's really a dumb idea to put your confidence and faith in that kind of thing. I don't know if you've ever tried to live a lie. I did about two weeks ago. I won't give you the details of, me, of it, but in about 12 hours, I was shattered and broken. If you've tried to live a lie, you know how it just wears on you. It beats on you. It weighs on you. How do you go and base your whole life on a lie and have any kind of functionality? So instead of living the lie, he said, consider living the reality. And he talks then about the reality of the resurrection. He says, listen, the resurrection is the beginning to the end. And he begins to point out three or four things that matter to them with the resurrection. The first is the man that matters. And you, you might find that in verse 20 and following. He talks about two men, Adam and Christ. And the effect and the actions of another's is what he's going to get at in these men carries forward into the future. There are people that are desperately wanting to know their roots. They might have been adopted. They might have lost their parents at a young age. Or they might just know their parents, but they don't know their grandparents or farther, farther beyond that. And we want to know where we come from. There's a longing and a desire that we have to know what makes us tick. Why do I act like this? Why do I have that twitch in my nose? What am I going to get as a, as a disease? Am I going to die of cancer? Is there, is there MS in my genes? Like people want to know their past so that they can prepare for the present and the future. Well, let me simplify things for us here. A little bit. We all have a shared heritage, every single one of us here today. And we can zero in on the most important reality of our heritage. And we can actually understand that there are consequences that we now experience today, all of us, because of who we're related to. The first one he mentions is Adam. Every single human being that has ever lived and is living now and will live is intimately connected to Adam. You can trace your lineage back to Adam. 
And the most important thing that you need to know about your lineage to Adam is that his actions have impacted you today. And his action of disobeying God has brought sin not only into the world, but sin into your life as well. So we are now by nature children of wrath. And because of Adam's actions, we now are sinful beings. Do you want to know why you do the things you do? Do you want to know why you think the way you do? Think about Adam. Think about sin. And think about the consequences of sin. The Bible tells us very clearly through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and into all of us. Christ, though, is the second Adam. He also is our representative head. By that we mean we are, they, they represent what, um, what uh, we needed to do. Um, if we were all Adam, we would have done the same thing. And even more so, God had determined that all of our identities and all of our futures would be tied to the actions of Adam. And in the same way, all who put their faith and trust in Jesus, our identities are tied to Jesus Christ. We are bound up with his life, with his death, and with his resurrection. His righteousness is given to us. His acceptance before God is given to us. That all who are in Christ Jesus receive the benefits of being identified and bound up with Jesus. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Both of these men matter. And they matter for our understanding of the resurrection. There's a side note here that I think is really important, and it has to do with the historical relation of Adam and the significance of a historical Adam. An argument against evolution resulting in the human race is significant and, in fact, eternally significant. The insurmountable problems with denying a literal Adam and a historical fall should make it abundantly clear that too much is at stake to discard an historical Adam and the scripture's teaching that Adam's sin is responsible for the mess we are in. A catastrophic fall occurred when Adam sinned. So much so that we experience life today in a way that we were not supposed to experience it. And I am willing to stake my life on the fact that Adam was a real man created by God through whom death entered into this world and sin into my life. Just as I am willing to stake my life upon the truth that Christ's resurrection will bring for all who put their trust and faith in him their restoration and resurrection to eternal life. So there is a man that matters. The second is an order that matters. When we're thinking about the resurrection, we can really get discombobulated if we get the order wrong. And um, Paul writes to them, but each in his own order in verse 23. He says, listen, it's true that those who are dead are still in the graves because it's not the right time for them to be raised yet. He says, first Christ had to be raised and that has happened. But the rest of us are not going to be raised until Christ had, has finished um, uh, um, bringing the whole world into submission to him, handing that to the Father, and then when Christ comes back, when the trumpet sounds, then all who are dead and all who are alive who are still in Christ Jesus will be changed and transformed and raised up. 
That's what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. And then um, the end comes. Loved ones, we have to remember the order. Yes, it has been years, dozens of years, hundreds of years, thousands of years, and there are many who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ whose bodies are still in the grave, but that doesn't mean that they will not be raised because there is an order and a timing to things, and God has not yet come back, and so they have not been raised yet. And there is an end that matters. He talks there about um, that uh, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, and then comes the end. We have Christ's resurrection. We have the resurrection of, of all those who have died in Christ, and then comes the end. When the fullness of the impact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is experienced across the cosmic world in which we live, and everything is restored to how God intended it to be. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. It's an incredible enemy. I don't know if you've ever thought through this. The, the longer that you live, I think, the more that you realize death is an enemy. I don't know why I did this this morning, but I just pulled out my funeral file. And in my funeral file, I basically got the bulletins of every funeral that I've ever conducted and some that I've just been part of. And it was a sad thing. To go through that because I realized that every single one of those people I knew I had a relationship with and I haven't talked with them some of them for weeks some of them for dozens and dozens of years and I realized how much of an enemy death is it's the opposite of life it's a thief what do thieves do they generally come and steal the things that are of most value to us they don't take that old pair of socks or that old pair of shoes that is right at the front door. They rummage around and dig around until they find the most precious things that you have, if they can, and they take them. Death separates. But there is coming a day that is assured through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has already demonstrated that he has defeated the power of death and he has defeated the curse of sin, when that resurrection power will be applied to all those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. Instead of living in the dark, wake up. Verses 29 to verses 30, he's wanting to apply the resurrection to their present way of living. And they had a few things that they needed to straighten out. One, they were living this double life, this confused life. He, he talks about this being baptized for the dead. He says, listen, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, then why are you practicing things that say that you do believe in the resurrection of the dead? I have no idea what the practice was, but it clearly implies that the living were doing something that they hoped would benefit the dead so that the dead would find a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's a whole whack of things wrong with that. Um, once you die then the judgment. The living have no impact on the dead. But Paul is using it to illustrate the fact that they were living confused lives. He says, wake up. Don't live a contradiction. Secondly, if there is no resurrection, 
Why would anyone give their life to serve others? And he accounts all the things that, or some of the things that he had done in his life of service. What would be the point of giving your life and service to others if this life was all there is? Why suffer? Why endure? Why fight through danger? If the dead are not raised, then just live for yourself and have a great life. Wake up. Give your heads a shake. Third point, there is a resurrection from the dead. So wake up. Think this through. He, he, he says, sober up. Drink a large glass of tomato juice. I hear that's what you're supposed to drink. Stop sinning. Your future resurrection has clear implications on your present life. We live with hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he shifts his focus to the future. And he anticipates their questions. And I, I think there's probably not a person here who hasn't asked these questions, who's thought about death and the resurrection, if you've ever confronted with it. And we ask these two questions to ourselves and um, maybe to others. How are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? I don't know if I would ever have the guts to say what Paul did to somebody who asked me that. You foolish person. Um, because I've asked that and I think, well, I'm not a fool. At least I don't think I am. But he begins to answer this question and he starts with what kind of body do they have? I don't know if you ever thought that. What kind of a body do I have when I'm raised from the dead. Well, he uses a couple of illustrations that I find really fascinating. He talks about seeds, first of all. And he says, they don't come to life unless they first die. We know that, but we take it for granted. You can, if you wanted to, you could leave seeds in your safety deposit book for your box for your great-great-grandchildren that would stay dormant in your safety deposit box until they were taken out by your great-grandchildren. And they would plant them in the ground and water them and they would grow. It's, a, it's this truth that we see illustrated all around us on our plates every day. We reap the benefit of that truth that something first has to die before it is raised. Secondly, we also know that what we put in the ground is not what grows out of the ground. I was shocked this year in my, uh, Catherine, my first sort of attempt at some mediocre gardening. And... When you have the little containers that say, well, this is um, uh, a pumpkin and this is this and this is this, then you can look at them and say, okay, there's a correlation there. But if you just threw a bunch of seeds in front of me, I, there's not a chance I could tell you what that seed would grow into. And Paul is just using that as an example that what we, what we have now is going to be so is connected, but it's going to be different from what we are now. He says, look at the world around you. There are illustrations of the resurrection. It's not a dumb idea. It's illustrated all around us. Just open your heart and your mind to see it. He says, look at flesh. Look at animals and uh, humans and birds and fish. What they have in common, for the most part, is a fertilized egg. You look at those fertilized egg and they really don't look a whole lot different. But how is it that the fertilized egg of a human turns into a human and not a fish? It's this extraordinary power of God and work of God that out of what is planted or out of the seed grows this incredible reality that at first glance is not at all connected with how it starts. It says, consider the heavens, heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. The glories of each is so vastly different. If you've ever had the experience, and I have just recently, to be on a mountainside and 
uh, on the one hand, to watch the, the moon in all its glory and beauty begin to go down over the horizon and just its brightness and its glow and you can see the craters even with, the, uh, with, the, with, a, with a, uh, an un-whatever eye, just your bare naked eye. And then as the moon is going down, the sun is coming up and it's just glorious in, in its own way. And Paul is just describing, he says, listen, God's ability to bring glory from all his creation is astounding. What kind of a body? It will be one that is appropriate to our human body. And he gives these comparisons. This body right now is perishable, but it's going to be made imperishable. That is, uh, that's for me inconceivable really right now. Because I, I feel the death of this body almost every day and more and more as I get older. He says it's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. There is a dark side to our bodies. There is a dishonorable reality to our bodies. But one day when it is transformed, it is going to be glorious in its fullness. It's sown in weakness. We tire. We weary. Our minds grow weak. Our bodies grow weak. But he said it will be raised in strength. It is a natural body, but it will be raised a spiritual body. Right now it's a living being, but it will be raised a living spirit we are now from earth but we will then be from heaven we are now in the image of adam but when we are raised we will be in the image of christ just glimpses into what kind of body it will be and how will the dead be raised he says first of all flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of god so there's a necessity to the resurrection of the body there's an assumption there that these bodies that we have cannot enter into eternal life. There, there's restrictions, there's sin, there's stuff about them that uh, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It says, nor will that which is perishable inherit the imperishable. So something has to happen to us. What? We shall all be changed. It's a staggering change as described in the scripture and it, it's even hard to comprehend. He just simply says that we will all be changed even those of us who don't die. How? He says in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, as far as I know, the twinkling of an eye is the fastest bodily movement. It's, 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 it's fast. And in, in, in a twinkling of an eye, these bodies that we are now all living in and experiencing will be changed, will be transformed, will be made to last forever and ever, will be made perfect in every way. Our, our minds, our souls, our bodies, everything will function as God always intended it to function. And when will that happen? At the last trumpet. When Christ returns, he says, the dead will be raised, the living shall be changed, the perishable will put on imperishable, the mortal will put on immortality, and death will no longer reign. Can you imagine that? Like, I, I think there's not a person here that doesn't think about the day they're going to die. What's it going to be like? Is it going to hurt? Is it not going to hurt? Is it going to be quick? Is it going to be slow? Am I going to be afraid? Can you imagine that not part of your existence anymore? To never, ever have another thought about death? 
Its sting will be removed, for the wages of sin is death. Its power will be broken. Our future will be bright. And how does Paul summarize it? Thanks be to God. Finally, living in the truth. This, really, this whole chapter is contained or caught up in the first couple verses in verse 58. Verse, verses, first two verses are about salvation and the gospel. The last verse is about living. I want to come back to the first two verses in just a moment, but to say that if you notice in verse 58, there's a little word, therefore. It struck me this week as I was looking at it that all that Paul has written on the resurrection, a future hope and a certain reality, has a present impact on us today. There's something about the, the gospel of 1 Corinthians that this is at least the third very clear reference that I can see in 1 Corinthians about how the future hope has a direct impact on how we live our lives in the present. But first, the gospel. Salvation. This is nothing to be scoffed at. If you are outside of Christ this morning... Your future is eternally bleak. But embedded in the gospel is the good news of salvation, which is tied directly to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because it says that according to Scripture, he died for our sins and was buried. But that's not the end of the story. God raised him up on the third day, defeating death and the power of sin. The good news of the gospel is that you can receive the forgiveness of your sins. That you can turn from your sin today. I know its appeal. I know its strength. I know its power. But I know that the appeal of Jesus and the strength of Jesus and the power of Jesus is greater than any sin that you might find yourself indulging in. And I know that Jesus Christ has died to pay the penalty for your sin. I know that Jesus has broken the power of sin. I know that God has accepted the death of Jesus Christ and his life because he raised him from the dead. And so if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior today, I want you to understand the magnitude of the free gift that is offered to you in the gospel. One of the things that troubles me in the day and age in which we live is we think free things are of no value. We play with this at church. We say, well, if we say it's $10 for people to come to a discipleship class, there's a chance that more of you will come if you have to pay $10 than if it's free. We attach value to something that we have to pay for. Because I think in a small way, we pat ourselves in the back and we say, well, you know, I had to earn the money to do that. The free gift of salvation may be free to you, but its cost was something you would never, ever come close to being able to pay. And so my urging to you is accept the free gift of God. 
be reconciled to him. Know the hope of a resurrected body when Jesus Christ comes again. And then for those of us who serve, it's funny, I probably should have spent five minutes on the first 57 verses and 30 minutes on the last verse. This is how the resurrection impacts us in the present. Be steadfast. Don't waver. Be settled. Don't waffle. Don't give in to those who mock you and make fun of you. Don't give in to the lies that are whispered by the evil one as you're dying. This is the end. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Stand on the truth of God. He says that, does he not, in verse 2? The gospel I preached to you in which you received, in which you stand. Stand your ground. Don't be moved. Don't be knocked down. Don't be pushed off of your confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and therefore your resurrection. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. It's amazing, isn't it, how practical an incredibly great, huge doctrine like the resurrection, how practical that doctrine is to our life. Because because we know there's a future, because we know that life is not the end, serve with power and with meaning and with tirelessness. Know that God sees. Know that God is aware. Know that God will reward. Know that, know that there, there, there is a future, that your actions now will make a difference in the future. As he says, because we know our labor is not in vain. How do we know our labor is not in vain? Because this world is not all there is. Pour your life into your kids. Pour your life into your grandkids. Pour your, pour your life into your calling. Pour your life into serving. Because it all has meaning and value through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the resurrection is a past, a present, and a future reality. It's past reality Determine how you live today with your sights set fully on the future hope that you too will experience the transforming power of God to raise you up or to transform your body into the likeness of Christ. Father, we thank you for your word today and uh, for the hope of the resurrection. It's not just a heady theological truth, although it is that. But it's also something that actually impacts the little things that I do every day. The decisions that I make about where to go and where not to go. But the way that I think about the present and the future, the way that I think about others. Father, let this short overview of the resurrection in the middle of October be of great encouragement to us through this week I pray in Jesus name Amen